What happens when Jesus comes face to face with remarkable faith, incredible loss, and honest questions? Well, Luke 7 presents all three, and in it we're given this clear pattern of Jesus meeting people right where they are, in places of desperation, in places of pain, in places of doubt. Jesus is still doing it, you know. He's still meeting us right where we are. And I've been trusting him all week to do that specifically through Luke 7. So before we we jump into this text, let's pray. Father, would you meet us there? Would you meet us here? Through your son, would you help us to see that you're still doing this, meeting us where we are? Lord, you know it's been my prayer that you'd meet, uh, Lord, my friends who gather today in a place of desperation, who are in a place of desperation, that you'd meet them there who are in a place of of, of incredible loss that no one can feel, no one can understand but you, that you'd meet them there. And that those who are struggling with questions and doubts, that you'd meet them there. That none of this takes you by surprise and none of this is too big for you. Father, meet us in our places of, of desperation, pain, and doubt, we pray. Help us to see that you're there. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read Luke chapter seven. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who heard, or rather, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep or do not cry. And then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, 
calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And we'll pause there. Three things I pray we see this morning. First, Jesus meets remarkable faith with admiration. Second, Jesus meets incredible loss with compassion. Third, Jesus meets honest questions with his very life. Remarkable faith. So Jesus has just finished his sermon in Luke 6. We didn't read it, but there's this really wonderful illustration at the end of Luke 6 of a person who is living by faith. And and Jesus says, the one who hears and who does my word, you, you know what he's like? He's like a man who is building his house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. A man who hears my words and does them. Is like a man building his house who dug a deep foundation upon a rock. You know, I, I grew up in Maine. Uh, I'm from Portland, Maine, and the coastline, this beautiful rocky coastline. I remember as a kid um, spending uh, summers on the, on the beach. Sometimes I would go to the beach, and I remember standing there with the, the freezing cold water. First of all, it numbs your legs and feet. The water up there, it's not bath water like here in the Gulf. You are numb when you go in the, the ocean. I'm surprised that I could walk when I would go back to my towel. But the point is this. The water would come, and it would, it would retreat, and with every passing wave, more sand would be pulled out from under my feet. I just loved standing there as a kid and feeling all the sand pull out from under my feet. And... But then I'd go exploring on the rocks for sea creatures and starfish and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and no matter how fierce the, the water was, no matter how strong the waves, the rocks, well, they're still there. I can go to that beach, and those rocks have not moved. And Jesus is saying, a person who hears and, and does or obeys, oh, he's like that. He's built on the rock. And it's a picture of faith. But it's a picture of faith that immediately leads us to a real-life example of faith, beautiful faith. And and that's what I want us to see, that Jesus is meeting remarkable faith here with admiration. And so we're introduced at the beginning of Luke 7 to this centurion. 
He's a military leader. He's in charge of about 100 men. This guy's probably a veteran soldier. He's definitely a seasoned leader. Is he retired? Is he working for Herod Antipas in, in maybe peacekeeping, in, in more of a peacekeeping role? Some th- thought so. But here's the deal. He had a servant who was about to die, and this servant was highly valued to the centurion. We know that. So here is a Roman occupier who we can conclude was wealthy, was hardworking, and was generous. He gave towards the building of the synagogue, the the place of worship for the Jews, which means he was gracious towards the Jews. He didn't look down on them. And actually, he was probably what the Jews would have called a God-fearer. This is someone who wasn't a full-on convert, but worshipped as if from the outside looking in. He was learning these new truths from this strange ancient way of life. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you're learning new truth from this ancient book, this ancient way of life. Or maybe you feel like the centurion. You you feel like you're kind of on the outside looking in right now. And that's okay. You're in a safe place to be in that position. The centurion, though, heard about Jesus and sent the Jewish elders or leaders within the community to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. And look what they say about this man. This is their report of the centurion. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, oh, he's worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's, he, he is the one who actually built our synagogue. So he's, he's highly respected. He is valued in the community. He's a generous man. But word must have gotten out to the centurion that Jesus was willing to come to his home. Because, and, you know, the, the centurion, he could, have, he could have gotten his nice home ready. He was a man of wealth. He could have uh, gotten in his best clothes, could have tidied up. Man, Jesus, this, Jesus is coming to my home. I, I'm going to welcome him in. I'm gonna, but he doesn't do that. He actually does something that actually surprises me and should surprise all of us. He sends his friends ahead and tells Jesus something, something different. What's he say? Verse 6. And when Jesus went with them, or I'm sorry, and Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, the centurion might have been thinking about Jewish customs of the day, According to Jewish tradition, if Jesus entered a Gentile's home, a non-Jew's home, then he would have become unclean, ceremonially unclean. But what does he say? He says, I'm not worthy. Oh, but these guys were saying he's worthy. But the report that he brings of himself is, I'm not worthy. You're you're coming to my house? You want to come under my roof? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And I, I didn't actually think it was my place to even come to you. But just say the word. Essentially, he's saying, here's what I know. I know what it is to be under authority. I know what it is to have authority. So just say the word. Say it, and my servant will be healed. Have you ever been uh, told that you could do something or have access or authority to be somewhere because someone else said so? I mean, as kids, we get that. You know, we can stay up an hour later because mom and dad said so. You know, and kids are all proud of that. You know, like, yeah, 10 o'clock. 
Or what about a backstage pass? You know, you're at a concert, you know, and all the, all the little people are, you know, in the grass. But no, you're in, you're on the, you're, you've got the backstage pass. Or whatever, you know what I'm saying. You go to a special event and you've got front row seats or whatever it is. You've got authority to be there, but it's not because it's you. It's someone else has given you that right or that authority to do or to, to, to be where you are. The centurion understood authority. And the truth is, we, we really push against authority all the time. We don't like to admit that there is actually authority over us. And this can be a real struggle when contemplating whether or not you're going to embrace Jesus as king. Authority in our mind might mean restrictions. The boundary lines have been drawn for us. Maybe our lives feel fenced in. But I got a question. What if, what if the one who held and holds all authority, the one who drew the boundary lines, did it out of love for us? I believe he did. What if he did it for our good? You know, Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. He marveled. He was actually astonished. And usually people are amazed at Jesus' actions, but it's the opposite. Jesus is amazed. He's astonished at this man's remarkable faith. It was remarkable faith. Jesus admired it so much that he turns to the crowds and he says, I've not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. Whoa. Wait a minute. A foreigner? A Roman occupier? A person who is really in every way on the outside looking in? That's your model of faith, Jesus? Isn't there a better example for us to follow? So let's rewind this scene a little bit and look at it again. What exactly did this man do to exhibit faith worthy enough for Jesus to hold up and point to and say, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. What did he do? Because Jesus is, is admiring this man's faith. He's commending it as something not before seen. So I think the centurion was thinking this. I think this is what's beautiful to Jesus and what Jesus admires. If Jesus is the king of the world, if he is Messiah, the promised savior and deliverer and rescuer, then he holds all authority. And if he holds all authority, then I, I, I know that this act of healing my servant is nothing to him, and all he has to do is say the word. You know, Jesus never entered the centurion's home. They actually never met, as far as we know. And so the centurion is actually exercising the same faith that you and I are called to. I've not seen Jesus physically. But this is not a second-rate or disadvantaged faith. It's actually beautiful faith. John chapter 20. I want to read, starting in verse 26, this is Jesus' encounter with the disciple Thomas. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, verse 26 of John chapter 20 says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe 
And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me, have not seen and yet have believed. Well, that's us. That was the centurion as well. He trusted Jesus' word would be enough because he believed Jesus had the authority to back it up. Jesus was the object of his faith. You know, we all, have, we all have one, an object of faith that we're trusting in, whether it's ourselves, whether it's money, whether it's our identity and what we do. I mean, there's, there's something we're putting our faith and our hope in that brings rest or peace or satisfaction. And, and Jesus was the object of the centurion's faith. And he actually believed that if Jesus said the word, that he had the authority to back up what he said. And that was beautiful to Jesus. It's simple faith. It's like a child looking to a father or a mother and actually believing that what that parent says will come to pass. So Jesus met this centurion in a place of desperation. And he met his servant at the point of death. So Jesus meets this remarkable faith with admiration. And and, and that centurion, you know, he would never have said something like, well, what I'm doing today is remarkable. It's just fantastic faith. And I'm going to go down in the Bible as this picture of beautiful faith, of one that Jesus admired. The centurion wouldn't have thought that at all. Actually, he had this humble confidence. That's what he had. This humble confidence that felt unremarkable in the moment. But it looks to Jesus. And that's what makes it truly remarkable. Say the word is what he said. Say the word. You've got the authority to do this and your word will be enough. So this unnamed centurion remains a model for us today, an example to follow. Say the word. Say the word. I'm trusting your word and the authority you have to back up what you say. And we're doing that today. The second uh, meeting that Jesus has in Luke 7 is that he meets incredible loss with compassion. And I want you to put yourself there, if, if, if you can. Put yourself on the streets of Nain. Imagine yourself as part of this large crowd falling behind a widow. It's a hot day. Dust is kicking up all around. You hear people crying. There's a heaviness in the air. There is serious grief. This woman's husband had died not long before, and now you're with the crowd heading to the gravesite to lay her only son in the same tomb as her husband. So death is common, but this? You ever gone to a funeral and you're just like, man, this person was way too young. And there, you know, there's nothing more heartbreaking than a parent having to bury their own child. Just last week, I was, I was leading a, a, a memorial service for someone who died way too young, standing at the head of this casket, staring at parents who had to bury their child. And there was a heaviness and a grief in the air that was appropriate. So put yourself there on the streets of Nain. Procession is led by the group of men carrying 
carrying the body in an open casket, more like a plank. So the body is laid on this plank, an open casket, it's wrapped. Spices would have been put on him to help with the stench. He would have died not long ago. Uh, You had to put him in the grave soon. Now as you leave the city, you see this great crowd coming your way, led by Jesus. Led by this great teacher, this great prophet, this great healer that you've heard about by Jesus. So there's this great crowd following the widow and this great crowd that's following Jesus and they they meet. They meet just coming out of the gate of Nain. And here's what it says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her. Now when I saw that, I had to pause. It says he saw her. Now what might seem insignificant to us at first I, I want us to see the value behind it. His total attention is on her. Not the disciples, not the crowds, not the bearers. All that fades into the background for Jesus. He sees the widow. He sees the widow in her brokenness. He saw her in the midst of incredible loss and pain and hopelessness and grief. And this woman's world had come to a screeching halt. It had stopped. This woman, after she buries her only son, would go back to town destitute. No one there to provide for her daily needs. Her husband had died, and now her only son, her only means of provision, she would be alone. But he saw her. And it says he had compassion on her. Now it says compassion, but it literally means his heart, or literally his bowels, his inner parts. Now that sounds strange to us, but it's saying his everything went out to her. His his everything went out to her. He had compassion. And so the sorrow and the frustration and the bitterness and the anger just hit Jesus like a wave. And what did he say to her? Don't weep. Don't cry. So if you picture a stoic Jesus lacking emotion, kind of floating around, put that idea, put that image to rest. It's not not the Jesus of of the Gospels. His heart was broken. Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years prior, talked about Jesus. He'd be a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Oh, was he ever. What does this tell us about God's character? That he has feelings towards the broken of this world, towards the brokenness of this world. He understands that death is a thief. Always taking, never giving. I want you to know, church, listen, a day is coming, and this is hard for me to communicate, but a day is coming when death will take what you love and the loss will be indescribable. Indescribable. No one will know how you feel, and they could never know, really, truly, because the loss is yours. But Jesus will. He will know how you feel. Here he sees this woman in her pain, and he cares for her. His heart breaks. His compassion for you, church, is so deep that he gave his everything through death so that death would not have the final say. How did he do it? 
through the cross. So here Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches that plank that the dead body is on. Won't he become ceremonially unclean? What is this rabbi doing? Touching something that a corpse is on. And then he speaks to the dead man. Young man, I say to you, one word, what's he say? Arise, arise. And and so the voice of the one with all authority, we're hearing the voice of the one with all authority speaking to a dead man, and this man had no choice in the matter. He sat up, and then he starts to talk. No idea what this man was saying. Like, "Ah," I don't know, what was he saying? I don't know. We're not told. But the boy is given back to his mom. Imagine the response of mom. I mean, just ecstatic. Just like, wah. Just the the crowd goes wild. Fear grips them, but then they start to praise God. What was robbed of her? What was robbed of her through death? What death stole? Jesus gave it back. Jesus gave him back. So Jesus met this indescribable loss with compassion. So first we have this servant on the verge of death and the centurion just says, man, just say the word. I know he'll be made well. And then here a man has died and his mom spoke to Jesus, not with words, but with tears. And Jesus is the one who says, one word, arise. So what could possibly be the point of all of, of, all of this, of these two stories back to back being delivered to us here in 2020? Why are we given these points? Why is scripture Uh, given us these points well do we recognize do we acknowledge god's authority in jesus and how are we responding to god's authority in jesus so in verse 16 the people cry out oh this great prophet this great prophet has appeared among us god has visited his people in other words uh what are they saying they're saying god has come near to save and to rescue us this is the time we've been waiting for i mean it's a good response you might say yeah but jesus is more than a prophet That's true. He's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. But he was a prophet, the ultimate prophet, because he was speaking, not only speaking the word, he was the word made flesh. Your prophets spoke the word of God and did the work of God. Jesus is God's word. Jesus is the work of God. Jesus is everything that God the Father wants to say to us So he's still bringing the dead to life again. He's still meeting indescribable loss with compassion. Finally, Jesus meets honest questions and doubts with his very life. The scene turns to John's disciples. This is John the Baptist. Do you remember uh, the one who paved the way for Jesus to come? He was baptizing in the Jordan, readying the hearts and the lives of the Israelites for the coming Messiah. And they were doing it in the Jordan River because the story of Israel was one where when they entered the promised land, they not only crossed through the Red Sea, but they crossed through the Jordan River. So this, is a, a, this was a baptism of renewal and commitment and preparation for the coming king. And so here, uh, John the Baptist hears about what Jesus is doing. What we're not told is that at this time, John is in prison. Do you remember he was, he was arrested? And so John's in prison and he sends his disciples ahead and he asks Jesus an honest question. But let me just say this. John is waiting. He's wondering. He's hearing what Jesus is doing. Uh, do you ever need a little confirmation from time to time? 
that what you've embraced is true? I think we all do. I'm sure that John the Baptist had some expectations of what Jesus would do and how it would all unfold. And so he asks an honest question. Are you the one? Are you the one? There were these expectations about the Messiah, about this coming king, about God's end time salvation. How's this going to all unfold? How is this going to be revealed? What's going to happen? I'm sure that John, is, as he's waiting in prison, he's thinking, is liberation coming? Is it coming in the way that we think? I mean, what's, how is this all going to unfold? And no one's exempt from having expectations that we lay over Jesus and we're like, this is how I think you should do it, Jesus. But maybe Jesus is doing things different than you would prefer or than you imagined. Is he doing things the way you expected? I can't imagine in every way he is or has. Will you lay down your personal agenda and expectations? John the Baptist had to. And we do too. What's really cool is that Jesus actually answers John's honest question uh, in verse 22. And look at how he he answers it. It's so cool. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So his words here, his actions are actually echoing the prophet Isaiah, all over Isaiah, but in particular Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 61, you can look at that, the prophet Isaiah and what he's saying about the coming king, the coming Messiah, but it demonstrates that yes, the promised day of salvation is here, and Jesus is the one ushering it in. It's here. It's bringing this confirmation to John the Baptist. And what's cool about this is that Jesus wasn't at all threatened by John's questions. Actually, he commends John in a huge way after answering his question. So listen, church, Jesus can handle our questions. He can handle our doubts. He can handle all of our expectations. He's not going to reject us. He's going to meet us where we are. And we might sit here and wonder, why would God allow so much suffering in this world? Honest question. Jesus answers it with his life just as he did John. He answered John's greatest question with his very life, his actions. We might wonder, why would you allow, you fill in the blank, you got your own thing you're wrestling with, God, why would you allow blank to happen to me? Why? And Jesus is able to answer that in the same way he did John, with my life. He's answering it with his life. Now, it might not answer all the questions that we have, but I do believe that he brings comfort and grace as we consider what God has done in Christ in answering some of our greatest questions. We wonder, when is God going to bring judgment on the wicked and deliverance to those who are trusting in him? And I believe he's answering the same way with his very life. And so John had to decide how he would respond in the very same way we do. John had to respond to the report of those of what they had seen and heard. Church, we have to decide how are we going to respond to the report of what others have seen and heard and given to us? How will we respond? Will we respond in faith? I believe it was a great comfort to John to hear this. Jesus was deliberately doing what Isaiah said he would do. I believe John needed that comfort and assurance as he sat in prison. 
And Jesus brought it. Jesus met people where they were. Church, he met people in places of desperation and pain and doubt. So what if I told you that Jesus will meet you where you are? That he's not far away and that he's willing to come under your roof? Just like the centurion. What if I told you that? Well, it's true. What would you do? How would you respond? Would you respond like the centurion? With faith that leans on the words of Jesus entirely? He will meet you in your desperation and in your pain. And he'll meet you in your place of doubt. It's not too big for him. That's good news. That's really good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. We're learning a lot about you as we look at Jesus, that you are a God who sees, that you, you're a God who knows, you're a God who cares, you're a God who intervenes. Lord, all of us have faced really dark times, some darker than others. And many of us, Lord, have experienced times that we just don't understand. We don't get. We don't know why they happened. We don't like that they happened. It's true. And, and Lord, we, I thank you that we can come to you and even express that to you. But Lord, my prayer is, is that you would remind all of us, regardless of the experiences that we've had, that you'd help us to see Jesus in such a way that we would see that Jesus is your answer to our suffering and to our greatest need. And that Jesus is still willing to meet us and you are meeting us through your son in places of desperation, in places of incredible loss that no one else can meet us in. So help us to see that and believe it and to, to Lord, respond to it with faith, to trust you in the midst of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.